Thanks, Candice. That was a great observation from Rick Broom too, wasn't it? Um, if you don't know, Rick is the general manager of Rima Central Coast, and so he's got a really unique perspective on the church on the coast. We are at week number four in a 600-week series in the Gospel of John. may not be quite that long. Um, the Gospel of John was written for one purpose, that you may believe. The last two weeks we've been in chapter one where John has made sure that we understand that this man, Jesus, is God. He is the word from the beginning. He is the creator. He is the promised Christ. Jesus is God made human for the purpose of closing that gap between creator and creation by taking away the sins of the world. Or to be accurate, Candace, to take away the sins of the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, however, it's actually with a K. Candace is running around the building. Good on you. Taking away the sins of the world. Indeed, that we would have the power to become children of God. John the baptizer uh, was a prophet. He prepared the way for Jesus and he testified that this is the Son of God. And after John had baptized him, the first part of Jesus' mission was to recruit this inner circle of followers, of, of students. He recruited Andrew and Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John, the writer of the gospel. These were the first five. And so today we pick up this story in chapter two. And I want to encourage you, if you've missed any of these message so, messages so far in the series, you can catch up on a podcast or go back and watch them on YouTube. And if you've been following along, what you would have seen already is that John's message is primarily symbolic. John is an old man at this point when he's writing this account. He is looking back with a lifetime of understanding. He's being very, very thoughtful. He's being philosophical in how he's piecing together this gospel. And John has peppered these opening paragraphs with, with metaphors and images and with symbols. And all of these symbols act as hyperlinks in the story, hyperlinks back to the creation narrative, back to the law, back to the prophets, all of these points that look forward to this man, Jesus. John writes about Jesus as the word, as, as the light, as the lamb. Names and numbers and, and these seemingly unimportant details all have great significance in John's writing. And in fact, if we only read John literally as a sequence of facts and events, then we will have missed the point Literalism is the lowest form of meaning, and so this means that we need to do some work together. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first of just seven signs that John records. He says that there were many others, but he's been really deliberate in choosing these seven. And when John writes about these miracles, he always calls them signs. And the word here is semeon 
which I think is a little bit ironic, given that the miracle we're looking at today is all about wine. But Simeon means sign. It means a marker. It, it's something that stands out and points beyond itself. John doesn't say miracle. He says sign. Jesus' miracles have communication value. They point beyond themselves to something bigger. And this first sign that we're going to look at today is the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine. That's the first sign, according to John. The second sign will be the healing of the official's son, then the healing of the crippled man at the pool on the Sabbath, uh, then the feeding of the 5,000. The fifth sign is Jesus walking on water, then the healing of the blind man on the Sabbath, and then the seventh sign culminates in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which Candace spoke about. And in fact, it's these seven signs that make up the first half of John's gospel. This first miracle, if we just read it literally, it seems frivolous. It seems trivial, perhaps even decadent when you just consider the amount of booze that Jesus conjures up. And perhaps that's all we focus on. But when, when, we have, when we have an eye for John's symbolism, when we get some understanding of how, how his first century Jewish and Greek readers would have read this and would have understood it, we begin to see that this is far from trivial. And as I've dug into this in this last week or so, I now think that this is the most profound sign and I'm pretty excited to be sharing it with you this morning. In this scene, in these first 12 verses of chapter 2, Jesus lets the cat out of the bag in terms of the entire thrust of the biblical narrative start to finish. We just need eyes to see. So let's jump in. As Candace said, uh, please open your Bible. Uh, you might also want to take some notes as we go today. And I think all of the scripture that I'm using today is from the NRSV. So John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. 
on the third day. John is straight into it here. The third day, both Jew and Gentile readers would see this immediately as a symbol, as a hyperlink to the resurrection. The third day, three days from mourning to joy, three days from death to life, three days from emptiness to overflow. So already John is looking forward to the, to the apex of Jesus' ministry. He is tying this sign to resurrection, to new life. And for the Jewish readers, meanwhile, they're starting to piece together that this is actually the seventh day. If we go back and we look at chapter 1 and we read verse 29, verse 35, verse 43, we're seeing, well, there was a day, then there was the next day, and then the next day, and the next day, plus this is now the third day, which means, hang on, this is the Lord's day. This is the perfect day. This is the day that the work of creation was completed and the Lord rested. So John is is looking forward to the pinnacle of the story at resurrection and back to the start of the story at creation and he's locating this sign within that story. So now we're paying attention. Well, what's going to happen on this day. Well, on this day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So Cana is, a, is about 10 kilometres from Nazareth. So it's pretty close uh, to Jesus' hometown. Jesus' mother seems to be uh, the main guest here. And John never calls her Mary, by the way. The fact that her son and his new mates have been invited might suggest that that this was a wedding of a relative. It's certainly somebody who is close. The five disciples had only been with Jesus for a couple of days at this point and John seems to be setting uh, setting something up here that, that especially has something to do with them. Now, Jewish weddings are a really big deal. Marriages are legally binding contracts between two families. It is a covenant agreement, a covenant agreement with significant financial responsibilities and even significant penalties. It's a one-year betrothal period and there's all sorts of preparations and celebrations and negotiations take place in that time. The bride and groom probably would have been young teenagers. Marriage was incredibly important because it would not only uh, unite these two young individuals, but it would unite their two families. And depending on, on the station of these families, marriage could unite tribes, it could unite people groups, it could unite entire kingdoms, tongues and tribes and nations could be united by the marriage covenant. Now, while the wedding itself could take place in the synagogue, the celebrations would take place in the groom's father's house. On the day of the wedding, there would be a long procession and that procession would go from the father's house to the bride's house where she has made herself ready. They would gather the bride and then back to the father's house 
for the celebrations. And this party would last for, get this, seven days. You imagine that bar tab. The guests, at least the guests who are part of the family, the guests would stay in the father's house for the whole duration of the celebration. The bigger the father's house, the more rooms it has, the bigger the celebration and the more guests could be invited. And the Jews would have been piecing all of this together. The scriptures are riddled with marriage and with wedding feast symbolism. And in fact, the human story starts with a wedding in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For out of man this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Marriage. And the human story finishes, it finishes in this age at least, with another wedding, with the ultimate wedding. In Revelation 19, the reuniting of heaven and earth. It is the wedding of the lamb. And John has already told us clearly who this lamb is. So Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the beginning and the end again, the Alpha and the Omega. So this marriage theme is massive in Scripture and Jewish readers would be keenly aware that the nation of Israel itself is the unfaithful wife of Jehovah. The marriage between God and Israel, according to the prophets Jeremiah and to Hosea and others, it ended in divorce, a broken covenant and a point of shame for the Jews. But even then, even in the midst of that unfaithfulness, Jehovah looked forward to a new covenant. So look at this. This was written uh, around 600 something years before Christ. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This new covenant is the future hope of Israel, a new and everlasting marriage, an eternal union between the people and their God, and the Jews are waiting for that day. And I reckon if you were to call out the primary theme 
of all of Scripture, of the whole story, it is union. It is union, disunion, reunion. It is oneness, harmony, peace, reconciliation. This is the entire thrust of the story of God. God has baked union. He has baked one fleshness and and our need for it into the fabric of all of creation because God himself is union. He is loving, diverse, reciprocal union. It is who he is and it is what he wants. And so therefore the ultimate trajectory of all creation is toward unity in and with this triune God, that he might become the all in all, Paul writes. Union is the ultimate destiny of all things. And so the story starts and it finishes with marriage as our primary human analogy of this divine union. So how flipping brilliant that Jesus commences his ministry with this sign. But there's a problem. Verse 3. When the wine gave out, when it ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, this is bad news, not just because no one likes it when the bar tab runs out, but because wine is a symbol. It is a symbol of provision. It is a symbol of blessing and of celebration and of joy. The psalmist writes in Psalm 104, speaking about God, he says, You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use, to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine and bread to strengthen the human heart. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 25, he writes about this wedding party in Revelation. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces And the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Wine is seen as this blessing from God. So there's this whole provision and celebration and joy thing going on here. And a wedding without joy is a disaster. And there could even be legal ramifications. And so mum steps in. They have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Woman, it sounds derogatory. It isn't. Just try it at home. You'll see. Uh, The word here is gune, and it's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word used for woman back in Genesis 2. And it can accurately be translated as wife. It is not the word for mother. Now, this might fry our brains a little, but Mary is the first Christian. She is the first human to know and to believe that Jesus 
is the Son of God. She is the first member of the body of the bride of Christ. So hold that thought. What concern is that to you and to me? And that's a good translation. Why should this concern both of us? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is getting pretty cool because in a Jewish wedding, the wine supply is the job of the groom. Woman, wife, the wine supply at this wedding is not our concern. I'm not the groom at this wedding. I'm not responsible for the wine at this wedding. My hour has not yet come. Some scholars might suggest that Jesus is being resistant here. He's not ready to go into public ministry, but he's, he gets pushed into it by his mum. But I don't think that's what's going on at all. Jesus is signalling his role as the groom in the wedding to end all weddings. But that hour has not yet come. Mary perhaps has some inkling of this and she certainly knows that there's much more going on. And so his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Mary is the first person to have witnessed a sign and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. She's already had that revelation, that revelation with angels and stars and shepherds and stuff. So she is already there. She's already acting as the church, as the ecclesia. This is an act of intercession for those in need. In the name of the true provider, do whatever he says. Now, standing there, were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, this is where it gets full on. Six stone water jars. The number six is incomplete. Readers here are thinking, hang on, there's a problem. Where's the seventh jar? At the same time, these jars are for for purification washing. This is a requirement of the Levitical law. And so so Jesus and and John, they're, they're mushing together here the number six and the function of these jars, and they're making a point about the deficiency of these purification rites, about the ineffectiveness of the law. Here are six jars symbolising the law and the fact that it is incomplete, that it is ineffective, insufficient. Now, six also signifies humanity. Human was created on day six of the creation narrative. And so there's also this idea that these six jars symbolise humanity, all, all of humanity. Now, these are big, heavy jars. They are stone jars. If they were clay, they would have had to have been smashed after they were used for washing because at that point they would have become ceremonially unclean. And so the use of stone jars was a Levitical loophole for rich people. They're big, they're heavy, they're cumbersome and they're difficult, if not impossible, 
to empty. Now, everybody at this wedding would have had to have used them to wash, especially the bride and the groom, um, before they consummate their marriage. Some scholars suggest that you start at, at, at jar number one and you wash and you move through all six. And, and so, so jar number one's particularly dirty and it gets a little bit better. Um, others would say that there are different size jars for different people. Whatever the case, the water is not clean. So there you are, humans. You are stuck in a heavy, ineffective, grotty legal system. And the joy has run out. Readers here are thinking, what the heck is going on? And what is he going to do with these dirty big jars? Well, Jesus says to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. These jars already have water in them, dirty water. Jesus says, just fill them up, just top them up, just fill them up to the brim. He does not say, empty them out and give them a good scrub. These jars are physically and ceremonially unclean. They are vessels of sin. We think... With our Western eyes, without understanding the backstory, we just think, oh, that's handy. Six big jars right there. Great. Jews are reading this and they're going, oh, my goodness, you can't. No. Jesus just says, put more water in them. Now, God can do a fair bit with water. He can fill the earth with it. He can gather it. He can separate it. He can part it. He can turn it into blood. He can make it come out of rocks. He can make it flow in new places. In chapter 6, he's even going to walk on it. Water symbolises life. It symbolises purity. It also symbolises his own spirit. And so again, John is using symbolism to reach, to reach back into the past, into, into the Israelite narratives of creation and exodus and even baptism. And as we'll see, he's also reaching into the future. In just a few days' time, Jesus will reveal that he is the source of living water, gushing up from within to eternal life. In John 7, Jesus will say, Let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. So fill those jars up right to the top. 600 litres. And then he said to them, to the servants, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. It's dirty water. It is dirty water from dirty jars. So you can imagine the servants. They're looking around for the apprentice. <laughs> just, just dip some out, take it to the MC. But the servants were obedient. And even though they had every reason to believe that what they were carrying was grossly insufficient, they took it and they offered it because that's what servants do. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So remember, the the servants are still carrying dirty water. They've drawn it out. They're walking over to the MC. 
They're carrying unclean, muddy water with just a bit of fresh Jesus water added in on top. It's what the Christian life can feel like sometimes, isn't it? New water mixed together with old water. It's the dirty water of ritual and sin commingled with just a dash of eternal life. It's not wine yet. It's not wine until it was poured out. And in the pouring out, Jesus doesn't just turn water into wine. He turns dirty water into wine. Jesus turns brokenness into joy. He turns ritual into celebration. He turns lack into abundance. He takes the old covenant and he transforms it. He doesn't start from scratch. He doesn't obliterate the old. He takes what's there and he makes it new, dirt and all. And I love that it's only the servants who know what's going on. While it's still in the jar... It was still old, dirty water mixed with a little bit of new Jesus water. It's in the serving. It's in the pouring out that transformation occurs. And there is a principle here. Joy comes from within, the living water bubbling up, transformed from the inside out as we pour ourselves out for one another. Joy comes from serving. It comes from self-emptying. How often instead do I fall into the trap of thinking that joy comes from being served? How tempting it is, and perhaps especially in these times of restriction, for me to think that my joy is dependent on other people meeting my needs, that my need is for other people to serve me, to provide for me, to care for me, to include me. And if I don't get these things, then my joy has run out. And indeed, there is joy in receiving care from another. It's like receiving good wine at the banquet. And sometimes we really need it. But it's secondhand joy. It's the joy that bubbled up in the heart of the giver and overflowed in service to me. For me to remain in a place where my joy is dependent upon what I receive from others, on what I expect to receive from others, is to settle for second-hand joy, disconnected from the source and incomplete. In John 15, verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. His joy is made complete in us as we are the ones doing the loving. Loving as he loved us. And how did he love us? Well, like this in Matthew 20, 26. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He loved us as a servant, a servant who pours out his life. 
Listen to Jesus at the Last Supper. Graham Roberts did a beautiful job of this on Thursday night at our prayer meeting. Thank you so much, Graham. Matthew 26, verse 27. Then he took the cup. Jesus took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom at the party. And the very next day, we see him on the cross, John 19, 33. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water poured out. John was the only one to record that detail. Jesus is the seventh vessel. He is the law made complete because Jesus fulfills the law. The ultimate law of love is now within us, inscribed on our hearts. Humanity is complete in him because Jesus is the true human. He is the new Adam. In him is the new covenant, the union between heaven and earth. In him is the living water bubbling up for eternal life and poured out as joy for the forgiveness of sins. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. I love how the bridegroom gets the credit. He's got no idea what's going on. The best wine is available now, right when the people are too drunk to know, too inebriated to see what's going on in front of them, right when your ability to judge is clouded, the good stuff is right in front of you. Can you see it? The old has run out. The good wine is here now. The better covenant, the good arrangement between God and humanity, the everlasting and joy-filled union of heaven and earth is here for you now and he has done it all. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his, his brothers and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. They no doubt needed a few days for Jesus to explain what just happened and probably to sober up. This was the first of seven signs that John records, and it is the setup. It is the framework of all the things to come. It places the identity and the purpose of Christ within the context of the entire biblical narrative. It's a signpost pointing toward all he will achieve for his creation this is the sign that reveals his glory. It was a revelation of a greater reality of the ultimate story with Jesus right at the centre of it all. 
He is the author and he is the context and the plot and he is the hero. He is the beginning and the end. He is the creator. Jesus is the sustainer. He is the true source, the true human, the true law. He is the true bridegroom. He is the son of God. He is betrothed to all humanity, uniting heaven and earth to joy everlasting. This sign revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And that's the whole point. Weddings matter. Weddings are echoes of the ultimate reality, the ultimate union between heaven and earth. And you are invited to this ultimate wedding because you're family. You have been fused into the family of God by a covenant where he took all the responsibility. Even though we were incomplete and unclean and unfaithful and separated from God, Jesus has taken our lack and he's turned it into abundance. And he has taken our shame and he has turned it into joy. And we are transformed from the inside out, dirt and all. But we don't even know it until like him, we pour ourselves out for one another, for the joy of others, joy everlasting. Let me close with the end of the story. Revelation 21, starting at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. This miracle is not just about spicing up a party. It's a sign It is a sign that points toward our shared destiny, toward our ultimate reality. All of us united together in and with Christ, overflowing with joy, everlasting. And you're included. I cannot imagine a more beautiful and more hopeful sign. What a stunning way Jesus opened his ministry. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, our desire is to honour and to glorify you, to know you, to see you, to understand that you are the creator, that you are the redeemer, that you are the ultimate reality that our hearts desire. Reveal yourself to us, we pray. We're thirsty. Let us drink from that living water so that we might be transformed out to the joy of one another. 
Fill us, we ask. And we fall on our knees and we give you thanks and we give you praise for all that you have done in your pouring out, Father, Son and Spirit, that you have reunited us with yourself. Let us see it. Give us a revelation of that reality so that it can't help but to shine forth. We love you, our Lord Jesus. We give you honour. We give you glory. Amen.